you may have seen, Buster did make a public statement. So we decided that tonight's episode will be all about the Stephen Smith um, investigation and all that is to come with that. But first, going to just introduce ourselves. My name is Hannah. This is Luke and Brian Sheely of the Sheely Law Firm here in Columbia, South Carolina, also located in Charleston, South Carolina. And this is Bring the Jury VOD Pod. Bring the Jury. Bring the Jury. Um, so yeah, I guess let's just start from the beginning. Um, the Stephen Smith death, death investigation is being reopened. Um, and so what, what happened? Back in July 2015, um, there was a hit and run investigation, um, for the, uh, pertaining to the death of Stephen Smith, who was found on a country back road in Hampton, South Carolina. He suffered, um, blunt force trauma to the head. Um, and that's, Kind of where, and it was all just ruled a hit and run, but there are definitely some suspicions, lots of unanswered questions, and so that is kind of what lays ahead. Yeah, and we'll take we'll take this kind of investigation, and you know, there's no charges, and so a lot of what we discuss on this pod are you know criminal charges of significance here locally, and then you know throughout the throughout the nation, but. You know, we can't ignore what's happening here in our own backyard. And so basically, you know, this, as most of the, most of the viewers know, was kind of wrapped up into the Murdoch investigation. And there's a lot of um, press coverage and blog coverage about the Stephen Smith murder, um, you know, as it's somehow associated. I don't think that can be proven at all. But, you know, basically SLED made an announcement that, during the course of their investigation with Maggie and Paul, they were reopening this particular investigation. And why SLED does what it does, I don't know. They, they had closed the investigation um, as an unsolved, hit-and-run fatality. Not a murder case that was unsolved, but a, a hit-and-run situation. Um, and then they decided to make a press release that they had discovered something or there was some reason for them to reopen the investigation, something associated with charging of Alex Murdoch. Hmm. But they had no one, after lots of reporting and coverage, seems to know what that information was unless they just decided to take a new look at everything. Could it be um, brought on by all of the media coverage? Like sure, I know the, sure, sure. there's the Netflix documentary that talks about it. Um, there, the HBO special I think has a nod, and then as most of you know, Mandy Matney does a lot of coverage specifically on Stephen Smith's. Yeah, case. definitely. It could just be Sled feeling the international eye on them, um, and there's a lot of you know. There was certainly a lot of appetite. <clears throat> there is appetite. For the consumption of Murdoch news, uh, which of course we covered, but that, you know, there's, if SLED is reopening investigation, I mean, there's no, there's certainly a reason why Alan Wilson, after day one of the Murdoch trial, decided to show up and be present at the prosecution table. And it wasn't because they needed him, but it was a political opportunity. The attorney general's office, so where's the attorney general? And at the very end, he did do a witness and did quite well. But there certainly is a, a law enforcement appetite for all things Murdoch. 
there's certainly a, a, a public nationwide international appetite. And so if Ms. Smith wants to retain lawyers to pursue a claim as, it, as she's doing and, and well let's talk about yeah. this let's talk about what what happened back then before okay. we get to that. Um, you know the facts on the ground before the case was reopened were this. I mean, basically, there was this hit-and-run scene where there's a, a someone driving down this rural road in Hampton County. I feel like we've kind of heard this story before, and they see a white male in the road. Um, law enforcement gets called, and, you know, I've got a copy of something that's readily available on the Internet. It's a trooper's um, partially redacted, incomplete investigative summary. And I don't even know who the trooper's from, but it... It does cover, you know, this is something that we see a lot in our criminal practice, you know, law enforcement's investigative report, and it basically helps us kind of set the scene for what they observed, and basically the troopers are out on the scene along with the coroner. The coroner at the time was Ernie Washington, and basically the troopers are looking at Stephen Smith, who has kind of a blunt force trauma injury to his right temple. You know, the way this report reads, it's not like a large, it doesn't sound like it's a massive amount of trauma all over the body. Like maybe you would experience in a accident case where someone gets struck on the road and they get dragged around or run over. This seems to be fairly acute. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're referencing it as being a entry point or some trauma to the right side above his brow. So not obvious broken bones or disfigurement or road rash like you might see if you were hit by a car. Right. Um, and here's the really interesting part is that the coroner, Ernie Washington, and, and the assistant coroner, Kelly Green, are on the scene describing it as a homicide. Uh, coroner Ernie Washington is saying that this he's showing the trooper a gunshot wound Kelly Green, the assistant coroner, is showing this particular trooper defensive injuries to the hand. And then this trooper is kind of canvassing the area and not seeing, in his opinion, any evidence that he normally associates with a hit-and-run fatality, like a taillight broken or a, or a front light broken or some, some kind of piece of, the, of a vehicle or brake marks or skid marks. And he's also noting that the, you know, Mr. Smith's shoes are loosely tied on his feet. And if they're hit by a car, I guess the assumption is that they would be flying around. Luke, a lot of people don't really know the difference between a pathologist and an elected coroner. Right. So when this coroner is giving his opinion, Luke, help, help the listeners kind of figure out what does that mean in your opinion? It's virtually worthless. <laughs> um, wait, wait, say that again. <laughs> what? what it, wait, you mean he, when he's pointing out uh, <laughs> is worthless? What do you mean? Well, I'll say this. So in South Carolina, our coroners are elected, and they're so he's the mean chili. They're yeah. they they run for office, and sometimes they're unopposed, but they politically seek a job that allows them to do an integral function of society, which is help. Whenever there's a death in South Carolina, it has to be investigated and decided for insurance purposes, law enforcement purposes, all kinds of purposes. Basically, whether it was an accident, whether it was self-inflicted, 
whether it's a homicide. And so the coroner doesn't have to be a medical doctor. I don't know that there's really any educational requirements. There might be some minimal ones, but certainly you don't have to be a medical doctor or a pathologist. So a lot of it is paperwork and putting out statements and checking a box regarding a manner of death. But they get that information from a pathologist who is a medical doctor and not just a general practitioner, but someone who is board certified and skilled and trained. Some of which we heard, of course, if you guys recall from the Murdoch trial, we heard from two of them, one for the state and one for the defense. But they, they spend thousands of hours training how to, to determine a mechanism of injury, a cause of death. They can't tell you who did it, but they receive the body to dissect and analyze, and they're trained at looking at like one. Um, so when the coroner gets out, coroners are frequently sometimes on scene, especially dependent on the ruralness of a county and what they have going on. But other than the fact that they have the ability to look at bodies quite a bit, being around morgues and in conjunction with the pathologist, they don't really have any medical training necessarily. And I don't know anything about coroner Ernie here, but I would doubt that he has Ernie Washington, but I doubt, I doubt that he had, had any medical training, but probably has seen a lot of bodies and thought it was suspicious and maybe was applying his common sense. And didn't we hear from the coroner in the Murdoch trial who tested the, the armpit? Right. That one did a, 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 a time, approximate time of death to determine based on thermometer, armpit test, and that was kind of widely debunked in the course of the trial by pathologists. But they just kind of serve a function of the government to check a box based on gathering general information and they're a conduit for law enforcement and other people because when people die they're constantly looking for information on their loved ones and they're part of the bureaucratic uh you know gatepost of that uh, process so all that being said so yeah so we get this trooper who is um, very much believing that this is not a hit and run in his experience. He's hearing on the scene from the coroner and the deputy coroner that they believe it's a homicide. They believe it's a gunshot wound to the head. There's no information about caliber of weapon, that kind of thing. So this kind of gets this trooper thinking that that's what's happening uh, based on his experience. And it's very clear from this report that we can go through a little more. So this trooper is pretty much beside himself, wanting to firmly contest the concept that this is a traffic accident. Now, troopers, their bread and butter in South Carolina are traffic accidents. They're the best at it, you know, vehicle collisions, deaths when people are hit by cars and injured, and, and they do a mate report, which is kind of a comprehensive, you know, scientific report. Some of their, their more highly trained ones do. To help determine the speed of impact, skid marks, they're you know able to to recreate a scene. But the thing that they have less experience with than other law enforcement is they they don't really deal with murder cases that much. They don't have much experience looking at gunshot wounds and determining whether it's a contact wound or a shotgun blast. They just they do DUIs, traffic tickets, death scenes about vehicular collisions, but 
but less often are they going to deal and determine and investigate murder cases. So I could see why this might be exciting to this particular trooper. Right. Um, so this trooper basically, you know, he is calling off the mate team because he's hearing on the scene it's a homicide, it's not a hit and run, we don't need a major accident investigation. This is just a killing with a firearm. So he kind of, you know, he's leaves the scene, he's doing his other duties, but he comes to find out from the pathologist because basically he's talking to SLED. They do their own investigation as well. And, you know, this is going to be Brittany, I believe, Burkett, or Brittany Burke and Trey Talon, these two agents, and they, they're looking at the scene and their experience are going, yeah, this is a hit and run accident. We don't find any anything that would make us believe that this is a, a head wound due to a gunshot. We're not seeing the hallmark signs of that. And so this trooper, per his report, basically calls the pathologist directly because they're referencing the pathologist. Um, and her name, what is her name, Luke? Erin? Erin Presnell? Presnell, yeah. And she's at, she's at the medical university, and of course she's going to be highly qualified, but he calls her up. Hey! Hey! <laughs> and this is all per his report, and he is challenging her on why are you calling this a hit-and-run fatality. And she says, well, because I don't see any gunshot, I don't see any fragments in Mr. Smith's brain. She's looking at X, x-rays, there's no bullet, bullet wounds or no fragments, and so she's doing her job. And it's clear in his report that he takes umbrage with that. And he's saying, well, why are you theorizing that this is a motor vehicle that caused a death? And she's saying, well, because I don't see any bullet or bullet fragments. And I've got a partially dislocated right shoulder. I've got a head wound. And he's in the middle of the road. It's your job to figure out, you know, how he died, basically, and how he got there. And so... This guy, this trooper, basically hangs up the phone and goes back to sled. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I've noticed online on, on the Twitterverse and other places that that particular kind of battle and the comment by a pathologist saying, "Hey, it's your job to figure out how he died," is causing a lot of people some heartburn. And but it is correct, like in in, in the sense that. She is using her scientific training to go. The wound does not look like a bullet entry point. You know, she's shaving the head. She's going to do all those things that a pathologist is supposed to do. And if you have an entry point, if there's no exit wound, then you're certainly going to have the bullet inside the head cavity. You're going to at least have fragments. And if she's not seeing that, and it doesn't look like an entry point, then she's going to be saying, well, this is my job. It's not like she's going to tell you know this trooper how to write a DUI ticket so he's kind of challenging her and what she is saying is I'm determining it's not a, a bullet wound it's not a gunshot wound but I can't tell you how he got on that road I can't tell you what part of a truck hypothetically hit his body I can't tell you if it was some other puncture wound it's your job investigator to to figure that part out is what she's saying so uh, you know for the kind of the online world to think that she's not doing her job or that she's lazy. I don't think that's exactly fair because she's just saying, I only know what's on my table right here. Um, right. And so basically this trooper, 
hearing this information, calls back the coroner, and the and the assistant deputy coroner is like, hey, what gives? You told me this was a gunshot wound to the head. Now I'm hearing different things from SLED. And this pathologist, what's going on? And basically the coroners have now backed down and have changed their opinion. And per this trooper's report, the coroner is saying, well, it's the doctor's call. And yeah, it is the doctor's call. But this would make for, for an interesting report um, to have, you know, anytime there's a change in opinion, whether it's only like a perfunctory kind of role, but necessary from a coroner who doesn't have any medical training to all of a sudden a trooper hearing it's a homicide to a hit and run. And he's thinking, I don't see any pieces in the road. It would be, it would be something that would make a lot of people be concerned potentially. Um, however, so let's talk about the other things that are going on with Mr. Smith. He's got his cell phone in his pocket. He's got the keys to his car in his pants pocket as well. He apparently, his vehicle is on the side of the road, up the road. His body is positioned about, you know, halfway between his vehicle and where he lives in this area. His gas cap is open. His, there's oil in the car. Um, law enforcement apparently tries to start the car, I guess, with his key or unable to start it. So it does appear to be disabled in some way. Um, so those are things that would corroborate the general concept that he would have been walking from a disabled car where he had at least been assessing the gas situation and perhaps been hit at night, whereas we didn't find a shell casing or projectile or gunshot residue or anything like that that would kind of further you know corroborate a gunshot now obviously it doesn't rule out kind of the wilder conspiracy concept where he could have been kidnapped he could have been abducted killed in some other location um, and then brought back to make it look like it was he was walking um, but it's still you'd be very hard-pressed to then say, well, how does a pathologist not know her job? Because it's one thing to have pathologists sometimes disagree about, you know, the angle or whether something, I mean, we had a big disagreement in this Murdoch case about Paul's head wound and whether it came mm -hmm. from a low angle up across his shoulder or, See, whether, episode. <laughs> or whether it was from, from the, or whether it was from the top of his head in the form of a contact wound but everybody said it was a shotgun wound they just disagreed about the angle and that was pretty rare pretty rare that you see pathologists go 180 but it would be phenomenally rare for and we're going to talk about what's happening in the exhumation request but it'd be phenomenally rare for a pathologist to go oh yes that's a sh that's a bullet wound when one said it completely just wasn't a bullet wound so to have causes of death so far apart it would have to be the ultimate fantastical cover-up corruption situation i mean yeah. you for a pathologist to look at a, a entry wound of a gunshot and just say there's no fragments there's no apparent entry wound. I did the x-rays. I did a full analysis of Mr. Smith's brain and found no... Because, you know, what they do on these these pathology examinations on a head wound is they basically peel back the brain. They take it out. They look, they're look. they looking everywhere. 
they're dissecting it, um, and they're doing x-rays for metal. And so for this pathologist to get it that wrong, like Luke said, not just angles and that kind of thing, but just gunshot wound to the head versus zero gunshot wound to the head, it'd have to be something pretty significant. Um, so that kind of brings us to what's happening now. Why are we talking about Stephen Smith? We're talking about Stephen Smith because everyone's talking about Stephen Smith. Um, and that's mostly because his mother has, you know, started it. You know, this is all very much covered because, you know, there's a GoFundMe to have a, a private retained pathologist take a look at Stephen Smith's body. Now, what do you have to do before you can take a look at the body? You've got to exhume the body. Um, this was on the Today Show today covering, um, apparently, attorney Eric Bland is going to be representing Stephen Smith's family um, in this process. I mean, for those of you that may have an idea about this, you can't just go dig up a body, even if it is your family member. You have to get a court order or law enforcement can seek an order to do this. It doesn't appear that this is being done by SLED. This, per the press release today by Mr. Bland, it seems like he's going to be petitioning the court for this process. And maybe it'll be, you know, SLED will be kind of nodding their head to this. I mean, but it's not a SLED law enforcement search warrant order. I mean, for them to do it, they'd have to be talking about probable cause. What do we have that's going to help us have a judge do something really significant uh, to to dig up a grave, to exhume a body for the purposes of a new pathology examination? So, so this is not SLED doing this. Um, this is going to be a privately retained attorney. Right, and I think I don't think SLED will certainly object. Um, they will. They might even. If this is granted and there's an exhumation done and an autopsy being performed, you know, seven years later, they will probably certainly have, I don't know if they'll have a pathologist around, but they'll certainly have people to document via photograph, take notes, and be on scene probably to see if there's any discoveries, because you really only get one crack at this, and again, the body... I'm no expert, but the body is going to be seven years past, mm -hmm. and it depends on the condition and preservation and everything else. You don't exactly know what you're finding, whether it's literally just bones or whether it's somewhat preserved, but it's going to be, anybody could say it's going to be less good than what uh, Dr. Presnell had the day she did the autopsy, but it's kind of, it's a, it's a rare thing. I mean, we... <laughs> I don't know if you want us to tell stories about our past. Yeah, I was going to ask, have you guys ever requested to exhume a body? Yes. Yes. And was it granted? No. Okay. So, I mean, we once had a homicide by child abuse case, very tragic, very sad, where a two-year-old child was dead, and um, we represented the father, and we had hired a pathologist to kind of assess the situation, very much do what pathologists can do at that point after an arrest and you know a year or so into a case is they can look at photos they can read reports but they can't literally see and, and assess for themselves 100 percent. so what our particular pathologist was requesting 
of us was that, hey, I, I, I don't think the original pathologist looked at this particular mechanism. He thought it could be almost like a child's stroke. He had a very particular name for it, um, almost a type of aneurysm that comes from a certain heart condition that he really couldn't rule out that he didn't think was properly assessed in the original autopsy. So he, he said, look, I can't, and this was high stakes poker. This was a very serious case. The prosecution was looking for serving a life sentence. Um, and so on behalf of our client, we made that motion. And it's a tough thing to do, to ask a judge to do that. Because in this case, the Stephen Smith case, you've got the living relative, the mama, she's all on board, mm-hmm. you know, so you don't have any opposition. In, in our case, the prosecution and the mama were not on board. And I was doing it on behalf of my client, an unusual request, and <laughs> it was not well received. <laughs> I think I remember the judge saying, bailiffs, lock the courtroom doors. Lock the doors. And um, we had a joke where this particular judge used to... Call, These guys are twins. We're twins. <laughs> and he would call me guys first. the bad Sheely, and Brian was the good Sheely, and that's literally where it came from. I, you know, I was making that motion. I was the bad Sheely for quite a while until we made a joke, but it was denied. Um, and that was that. But, you know, the state has had more success doing it. And I, I, part of my basis for making that motion in the past was that the prosecution, not that previously had done made the same motion in a similar child death case for a similar reason but to aid the prosecution of a defendant and that motion was granted so anyway make of that what you will let's talk about yes no go ahead go ahead well i may be moving on past what your question is i was going to say so let's say that um they are granted permission to exhume Stephen smith's body what happens if there is something that is discovered, like novel information. Well, so I want to talk about that a little bit, but I also want to talk about Eric Bland when he files a, in his press release today, he's going to file a petition to do this. And so I think a lot of people in the, even though this has nothing to do with the Murdochs at this point in time, um, may be like, oh, well, that'll go before Judge Newman, right? He was assigned by our Supreme Court to handle all the Murdoch uh, criminal allegations. Well, this would not. This is not a pending charge. This would not necessarily, in my opinion, be before Judge Newman unless it was no. specially requested before him because he's got a lot of knowledge about thing. I mean, I, I think this this attorney would have to just file it before a circuit court judge with jurisdiction down in Hampton County, and he had to file it. Um, before one of the rotating assigned judges of the circuit. So it's not necessarily going to be Judge Newman. Um, they could, I don't know why, I don't know under what mechanism they would try to get him involved because that would be something, that'd be cart before the horse in terms of. Yeah, I mean, other than the, the rumor mill that tries to link it to Buster Murdoch, and he put out a statement, a very strong statement today. We're going to talk about that. Um, there's no causal connection. It's just a request by a family who will be heard in the county where he died. So let's talk about the exhumation process. So this will be very expensive, and you know, a privately retained pathologist would have to be made available. Apparently that person is already in place. 
So they would have to take the body, transport it to this pathologist um, examination room, wherever they're located, or where they're going to be going into another examination room that's more local. And we have no idea who the identity of pathologist just is, but let's say Luke's already discussed what they're looking for. They're going to look for, well, clearly they're going to look for a second opinion on a bullet wound. So they're going to be looking for kind of like that telltale kind of entry wound, exit wound, uh, fragmentation, metal, damage consistent with that. After seven years, they're going to be able to do that. And so let's just say they find something of significance that would completely contradict the first pathologist. Well, that's a real big matzo ball because what that does is, well, it's not just a difference in angles, Luke. It's a whole different cause of death. Got it so wrong in, in head wounds and gunshot wounds are pretty obvious. I mean, there, there's metal going into body. So that would, that would be a total contradiction between a state pathologist and whoever the privately retained pathologist is. Here's the other contradiction. It'd also be a massive contradiction between the first... Now, this is a sled reopening of an investigation into Stephen Smith. It would be the, agents on, the sled agents on the ground in July of 2015 got it wrong. And SLED would have to deal with that because presumably a pathologist, if they make a finding that there definitely was a bullet wound, an injury wound, damage caused by metal, um, they would present it to SLED to incorporate it into their investigation. And so you got to, number one, you're going to have to have a pathologist that SLED believes. It's going to have to be someone highly qualified, highly credentialed. It'd be best if it was somebody in state. To be honest, I mean, we saw how out-of-state pathologists were kind of, you know, cross-examined in the Murdoch trial. Um, well, from Connecticut. Yeah, Some I mean, Yankee, what do you know well, about? Well, we, I think the guy was trained up north, but he was part of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. But, like, bottom line is, if SLED believes a pathologist who determines there's a, a gunshot wound, it would basically say that SLED screwed up initially. And so if you bring about a case into a murder where SLED screwed up on the front end, it just gives, if someone ever gets charged, it gives them a lot to work with. Luke, what other kind of physical evidence could a pathologist be trying to preserve for other kinds of forensic examination in, a, in an autopsy? I mean, it would be hard to say that they missed, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you'd be looking for hair, fibers. I mean, I read some reports where they found some blue paint chips on part of Stephen Smith's body that they went so far as to test and compare and matched certain Toyotas of a certain year. But like, you'd be, but that never went anywhere, and that's consistent with a vehicular accident. So... Now, just because it's a vehicular accident doesn't mean it's unintentional. It just sure. makes it not a gunshot. It could have been run over, and it could have been with intent, and that could be a murder. But, again, the fact that this pathologist originally says it's not a gunshot wound just because the trooper thought it could be, and that the non-medically trained coroner thought it was, 
doesn't mean it's not a murder. The question is, if it is a murder, who did it? But if it's not a murder, then let it stay a tragic accident. And so that's well, what the hoopla is all about. Well, here's the other thing. Legally in South Carolina, let's say it is a tragic accident where Stephen Smith is walking down the road and gets hit by someone who's not paying attention or doesn't see Mr. Smith because it's dark. If you fail to stop and render aid or call police mm-hmm. knowing that you hit someone, that's a major felony. And you can go away for a long time if they can match the identity of the vehicle to someone. I mean, that's a, that is a serious uh, penalty in South Carolina. Um, and it could be, you know, something that even starts as reckless can be criminal if you don't stay on scene, don't call 911, don't report it. Luke, do you think there's any way, any DNA evidence at this point? I know you've done a lot of DNA work. Could be preserved and analyzed? Nope. <laughs> well, tell everybody your thoughts on that. Because, I mean, that, I'm sure that's going to be a question. Like, what if, I mean, it would have what to if his assailant, let's say there is an assailant, had... There's not going to be any his, touch DNA. Like, touch DNA from my fingers on this table, on a surface, like a gun or metal... You know, glass, but you know, if someone, if he was in a physical struggle, I mean, I guess he says there's some reference to defensive wounds. So maybe, just maybe, if it hasn't decomposed after seven years, it, I can't imagine a pathologist wouldn't have scraped fingernails as a matter of course. But if they didn't, because they didn't view it as a defensive wound, they viewed it as road rash. And so they didn't scrape fingernails, and let's say, that the new pathologist scrapes fingernails what on what could be a questionable defensive wound, and maybe, but I just don't know how much actual non-degraded biological material you're going to have after seven years. I mean, maybe, but someone, I mean, a drop of blood would be more likely that somehow a pathologist would just ignore, and then you have to figure out, I mean, there's going to be, if he had a funeral, he's going to be cleaned, he's going to be... You know, I don't know anything about the circumstances of the casket open or not, but there's so much decan, 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 I can't talk today, contamination of evidence that you you almost would think that there's hardly any, other than saying it's a, a bullet wound or not, that there may not be any forensic evidence of value. So, you know, I'm sure this will be making headlines, you know, just due to how sensationalized everything in that part of the low country of South Carolina is nowadays. But um, but it, apparently there will be a court petition. And so with a court petition, there'll be, I'm sure, a lot of media coverage of that. I'm sure we'll be following that along. And so once the petition is granted, I, and you know, there's always a chance a judge could not grant it. But if you've got the consent of the mom, you've got law enforcement nodding to it, maybe even joining in a motion. Of course, the thing about that is, why wouldn't they just go ahead and be the one moving? Why would they not be the state moving before court based on evidence, meeting probable cause threshold to get a judge to order an exhumation in the course of their criminal investigation. That's not really a hard thing to do. They have to have something. Probable cause. It's a very low burden. Well, I think it's because they don't have that. 
Well, that's that, that, they're, they're happy to let the, right. they're happy to let the family do it on their own, just through their consent that they're the, they're the family. They've raised money. May we please do it? We're going to do it in a safe environment. We're not going to contaminate. You know, we're not going to desecrate human remains unnecessarily. We're not going to disrupt any other graves. We just, we just need to answer this question. So yeah, that makes it easy for SLED, and then they can look and peek and go, well, let's document while we're here and see what see what we see. And the question is, if the pathologist says yes, here's why I'm a better doctor and I'm looking for X Y Z signs, and it is a atypical type bullet entry wound. All right, fine. Who did it? Um, that doesn't get, I mean, it, SLED would then have to figure that out. And you can't rest based on rumor and speculation. You need proof, or you should need proof. And so you're kind of back to square one. But I just, it would be sensational for a pathologist to make that assessment credibly. Because we're not talking about a disagreement about angles. We're talking about a death by bullet wound or death by a vehicle. And here's the thing. If you are a pathologist at the Medical University of South Carolina that gets something like this so wrong, then you you do not need to be doing this type of work anymore. And that's just it. I mean, if you are that wrong on a cause of death, then you don't need to be doing this. Well, I'm sure this pathologist is just... Just from what you can find on the internet, it's just flooded with annoying calls and emails and messages. And I guarantee you she wished that nothing ever happened with the Murdoch family and she'd never heard of it because it's a huge pain in her butt. Um, and that's, of course, the fact that we're talking about it right now doesn't help her either. But um, it's just one of those things. So, you know, it really it would take some bizarre laziness, corruptness. I mean, the conspiracy wheels will turn and people will say, well, there's such a powerful family in that part of the world. They could make a call and get get people to render this or that opinion. And that's a lot of speculation. And the other very, very likely part of this is that the request to exhume Stephen Smith's body will be granted and they'll have a private, privately retained pathologist look at it and find... Nothing associated with homicide other than blunt force trauma, likely with a vehicle. And so I guess the question is, well, that doesn't necessarily close the door to a criminal charge. It just means that it wasn't a gunshot and that you would have to then connect who didn't stop in the vehicle. Who hit this young man and left him for dead on the side of the road? Because that's still a major criminal case in South Carolina that could put someone behind bars for a long, long time. Um, so then that becomes a whole other investigation piece. Has it been ruled out, though, that it couldn't have been, like, a hammer, a rock, a bat? No. I mean, well, I guess the first pathologist would... She's calling it blunt force trauma. Now, she's not saying... She's theorizing, per this very angry trooper, that it's most likely, I guess, from a vehicular trauma... And he's like, well, how are you, you know, how are you saying it's that? And she's like, that's your job, buddy. So I guess no. I guess other types of blunt force trauma couldn't be ruled out. Um, and I'm sure if the 
the privately retained pathologist, that's a good point, says, well, no to the gunshot wound. So the first pathologist is not losing her job. Mm-hmm. It's not a gunshot, but it could but I, but it could be something else other than a vehicle like a bat or a brick or a hammer or a large stick. Okay. So here's some uh, report we pulled today detailing it um, with quotes from the trooper and noting a sled report saying it was unclear at the time whether the hole was caused by a projectile and then they're questioning well could it have been the doctor said it was a hit and run based on it being found in the middle of the road she had no evidence other than the statement being put in the report and the investigator asked the pathologist if someone with a baseball bat could have caused the injury and she said no then investigator said, well, what if it was a wound was made by being struck by a bat or other object held by someone in a moving vehicle? And this quote, whether it's right or not, says the pathologist answered, well, I guess it's possible. And asked if a bat had been found as evidence. <laughs> so it's like, well, <laughs> kind of putting it back. maybe, but did you find a bat? Right, <laughs> so right. it's like, so then the question becomes, well, does Sled have a bat somewhere? That they found, have found or collected, like and they're trying to double. Yeah. Well, so. but now they have access to. I mean, they've combed through Paul's phone. Um, I think Stephen Smith's phone was actually intact, um, which is surprising. Had he been hit by a moving vehicle, um, and they're requesting more like cell phone records, social media records, and all of that. To kind of, I think, give somewhat of a roadmap for where to dive in. Like, who was he speaking to? What were his movements? Who do they contact next? Yeah, and the phone, as we know from the Murdoch trial, is a great source of evidence. I mean, so if they kind of ruled it, the investigation dead, as just an unsolved hit and run, and there's no need to look into the phone if it's not some kind of you know, malicious act necessarily. Mm-hmm. You don't need to say, well, who's he been talking to last? Did he, right. Did he call 911? Did he, I mean, apparently his phone was like dead or powered down, but if you have a phone, you can power it up. Um, and you can either have access to it through someone that knows you mm-hmm. know, how to open it up or like, you know, you can send it to the FBI, you can break it open. You can do a full sub extraction on it and get, everything in the world off that phone. Um, Hindsight. Yep, all that stuff. And like, you know, so as we saw in the Murdoch trial, GPS data can be lost if it's not preserved properly. It can be used to show exactly where you've been Mm -hmm. if it's preserved properly. Um, It seems very natural that his car broke down and he was walking home. But that doesn't necessarily mean there wasn't some intervening factor Mm -hmm. that... You know, we just don't know. Um, so, lots to think about in terms of, you know, even a pathologist privately retained rules out gunshot, could still be something else, and they, and they could certainly be asked to opine on that. But either way you spin it, SLED initially decided it was a hit and run with no malicious intent, like a murder case or something like that. They just call it, a, you know, a roadside fatality where someone didn't stop. So it's kind of built-in problems. If a criminal investigation ever does land on someone's doorstep, 
um, that defendant will have the ability to say, well, SLED, SLED says I didn't do it. Uh, they didn't get it right, and it will give someone a lot of another uh, stick to beat SLED with. And, you know, I think SLED feels like they've been beaten up a lot, and that's why we saw after the Alex Murdoch trial was over, Mark Keel got up and basically said, any crimes associated with Murdoch, we're coming for you, kind of in a very... Uh, Menacing. Well, he definitely... Ominous. Ominous, yeah. <laughs> so, um, kind of way. So let's talk about... Hannah, do you have anything else? No. Okay. You wanted to dive into the... Well, I want to talk about... We, we were, we're not going to mention Buster, but he did give a statement today, so I feel like we can talk about that because um, we're not trying to spread rumors until there's evidence of anything. There's... You know, it's like in the Murdoch trial, though. Sometimes the absence of evidence, state would say, is evidence. Not in this case. Not in our opinion. But, you know, based on all of this uh, Stephen Smith kind of reopening and then the, you know, the Today Show was covering it. You know, Eric Bland had a press conference. So, you know, apparently Buster gave a, a statement today through Dick Carpootlian and Jim Griffith. Uh, it was released right before... Eric Bland's press conference and basically to paraphrase he just said I've had enough um, I've tried to remain silent I'm still grieving over the death of my mother and my brother I love them dearly and I'm trying to be live a very private life right now that's why I haven't given a statement into anything I'm trying to be left alone but due to this story and he's referencing the Stephen Smith reopening of the investigation and a lot of the rumoring uh, going on uh, in in the public eye, I'm going to make a statement. And I had nothing to do with it. And please leave me alone. Um, I feel for his family, but like I didn't have anything to do with it. And basically, the, the last three or four lines says, anything put out in the media would be defamatory. Mm-hmm. And it would be an absolute lie. And you know... I mean, without evidence, and you just, and people keep on just uh, associating him with this case with zero evidence. You know, you get ma- major media outlets talking about it, and yeah, I mean, there have been defamation lawsuits successfully won for way less. Um, so, you know, he he made a public statement today, so we'll talk about it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be mentioning his name, but basically saying, "Back off! I'm trying to be private, and this is crazy." If you try to link me to it, Luke, what do you think? Yeah, I mean it. It's sad. He is a victim. He's grieving in multiple different ways for multiple different things. And good for him. He put it out there. He, I mean, he used the D word, the fame. And I think that's a trigger and should be a line in the sand and should make lots of media outlets and others' ears kind of tingle to back off because you could get your butt sued. And, I, you know, we've been following this situation for a while and I haven't. I've never heard anything remotely credible regarding a link to him and Stephen Smith. It's just kind of this appetite for consuming um, Murdoch and Murdoch public prosecution that people almost want it to be him. But you got to follow the evidence. Um, and you have to be very careful if you don't. So good for him. I'm sure he is exhausted. I'm sure he wants peace and wants to remain private. I will ask you this, Luke. What do you make of that press release from Buster coming from Dick Carpootlian and Jim Griffith? 
I think, you know, he testified for them on behalf of his father. They're clearly close. They represented his brother criminally. I'm sure they're someone that he leans on for legal advice. And probably when he caught wind of this, he was like, well, what do I do? How do I stop this? It's probably something like that. I don't know that it's any kind of anything more formal than that. And I'm sure they were happy to do it. So, well, while we're talking about Jim Griffith, you know, we're we're talking, yeah, Jim Griffith. Um, I gotta say this. I mean, there was some other news today that was basically a jail phone call during the trial from Alex Murdoch, like, as the trial was happening that was released. I wasn't aware about it, of it at all. I haven't heard about this at all. Um, well, I mean, it was talked about today in social media where Jim is basically saying, yeah, that's me, and I'm furious about its release as its attorney-client privileged. And so, yeah, I mean, we do have very, very strict rules concerning attorney-client privilege. However... If you call or receive a call from your client and you know it's a monitored line and and all, if if anyone's ever called a jail or received a call from an inmate at a jail, there's always a disclaimer that says this, this is monitored call. It's recorded. So if you're an attorney talking to your client on a monitored call, then you waive attorney client privilege. You're freely discussing something with your client that's privileged, knowing it's recorded. So it's, it's very similar to, if I recall, in the Murdoch trial. I can't remember, remember exactly, but there was an objection because Jim was trying to say that something couldn't come in because he was in the room and, and there's a sled agent or something. And Judge Newman, rightly so, said, listen, you waived attorney-client privilege when there is an agent in the room with you. And so it's the same thing here with these jail phone calls. Whether it's right or wrong, like Luke says, everything Murdoch is, there's an appetite for it. Um, public consumption, uh, ravenous public consumption for it. I mean, we're talking about it right now. But I will say this. It is a real big no-no for a lawyer to have a call with a client from jail and have any expectation of privilege. I mean, whenever we get a call from a client in jail, whether it's a murder case or a shoplifting case, I'm hanging that phone up and I'm letting my clients know on the very front end that we are not going to speak to you on the phone. It waives privilege. We will come see you at the jail as much as possible. And that, you know, the substance of the call, I don't, you know, I heard some of it. It didn't seem of any kind of real significance. I mean, it was just kind of talking about the day's lawyering and what was going on in trial, but you can't really expect to be upset that it's privileged when you've talked into a recorded line. Correct. Um, it's tough when you have a client in jail, especially in trial time or leading up to trial time. As a lawyer, you have to spend so many hours at the jail facility trying to prepare that client whether they're going to testify or just discussing legal issues. And a lot of times the client is the best source of information, but you really, we don't take jail calls for that very reason. We routinely in big cases get a dump of jail phone calls from the prosecution for years worth of what our client has hopefully 
not stupidly said to his family everything we ever told him not to discuss, which is anything about the case facts. It's what, you know, you can't stop your client from saying, Mama, I love you. Did you send me some money on my books? Or, hey, baby girl, how you doing tonight? But <laughs> you don't want to be talking lawyer strategy on the jail. And so it's just you don't want to rely on the state's or the prosecution's concept of what is a privileged thing or not and hope that then they're listening to your calls and they go, oh, that's the lawyer. We better stop listening here. Now, whether that comes into evidence, don't know. It might be it might be that a smart, kind judge keeps it out, but you're just creating problems uh, down the road. And I know that there's some outrage on behalf of the lawyers here, but everything I read of it was obtained as part of a FOIA, you know, after the trial. But the problem is, you know, if there is a new trial, then anything he says on these lines potentially could be used against him. Correct. And so I was shocked to not really see any jail phone calls in this case, period, because the state typically loves to do it. I don't know if that was a particular thing that maybe the attorney general's office didn't want to deal with in this case. Well, I think after the initial dump of jail phone calls pursuant to FOIA of Alec Murdoch talking to his family... I think there was pretty much a ceasing of that, and I bet they, I bet the defense probably asked for an order on that issue. But we didn't, yeah, we certainly didn't get any attorney client anything, and I, but like, yeah, apparently there was a phone call from the, you know, the local jail in Walterboro, and you can't really be upset about it, honestly. So any lawyers out there or wannabe criminal defense lawyers, go see your client. And, that, you know, there may be moments where you get a call and, and you know, I'll talk to mama. I can't, I'm not going to talk to you on the phone. I'll, I'll get the message I'll through. See, I'll see you tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow before court. Or, or if it's something really big, I'm coming down there right now. But you don't have a call on the jail and then say it's privileged. Um, there was a, a really, we could do a whole podcast, but there was a, a really big situation a number of years ago where there was an expectation of a lawyer um, of having a privileged communication with his client in the holding cell of a jail and unbeknownst to him the prosecutor was recording it now that's not waiving of privilege that's a bad prosecutor where you where you think you're having a private conversation and we can have a whole podcast on this but that was a terrible example uh, prosecutorial misconduct. So yeah, that lawyer had every right to be really upset. And that's a very notorious situation in South Carolina we could talk about, but um, he wasn't on a phone call. He was doing the right thing. He was down in a, at the jail talking to his client and got bugged essentially. And then that whole thing set off a firestorm in South Carolina. Um, but that's not what Jim did. And so... Yeah, you can be outraged, but at the same time, you can't have any idea that that's privileged. Um, what else we got? What else we got? Anybody have we any had, questions? Yeah, we had a few questions, a lot kind of pertaining to um, questions about Stephen Smith case. We don't have to maybe like get into hearsay or rumors or anything, but maybe just speaking to your experience with similar situations. So... Um, First off, a lot of people are interested in knowing why that Randy Murdaugh and, I, and perhaps Alex, I'm not sure, 
um, showed up to the crime scene. And again, this has nothing to do, we're not saying anything about Buster or creating any rumor, but have you all had any experience with, I guess talk about No, that's odd. People showing up to the crime scene. Well, but, I, again. And it was under this umbrella of, I, we want to help you and let us take this case for free. Well, I, you, know, you mean like some ambulance chasing? No. Yes. I, <laughs> Someone I, said that earlier. I can't speak with any true veracity on this, but I was going down a rabbit hole in the Twitterverse today, and the people were debating this, and somebody mentioned that and I'm sure people will correct me on here if it's not right, but that Sandy Smith, um, young Mr. Smith's father, was a current client at the big law firm, PM Ped, and that so when, obviously, um, Stephen Smith is deceased, that there was a call. Like, you call your lawyer, like, what's going on? He's dead on the side of the road. Is it an accident? We don't know. And it was kind of like, after the fact, while the crime scene, the crime scene, if it's a crime, but the scene was secured by law enforcement. So people were hotly debating that. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to shape up where, you know, you've got the whole Paul Murdoch boat crash allegation, which we saw fleshed out in the trial itself, where Alec is walking around with his law enforcement badge hanging out of his pocket and kind of talking to witnesses at the hospital and things like that. So... I don't have, like, crystal clear knowledge on that, but I think, I don't know that it's anything nefarious. Otherwise, Slade would have done a huge deep dive into it. Well, I'll play devil's advocate. I think maybe in small-town rural Hampton, South Carolina, where the largest firm in the area and maybe one of the largest firms in the state that does personal injury work, that does have a client whose son was just killed in an accident, Maybe in that reality, you go down there. But in every other reality, even some bigger cities in South Carolina, like where we are currently in Columbia, or in other metro areas, you know, Charlotte, Atlanta, you're not going down there. I don't care if you're, the firm that you work for is representing the father of the son. Mm-hmm. And that just doesn't happen. Not night of. It doesn't happen. So, like, people with national eyes looking on this like what are you talking about why in the world would they go down there i mean only in hampton county would that be somewhat plausible it's still in my perception a little odd because mm-hmm. you, you just back off and you let law enforcement do their job you got you know local uh troopers kind of at odds with sled you got lots of you got a crime scene here you know so it's only maybe plausible in that part of the world but like no one else gets it. I, I'm on the fence about it. I think it's kind of odd, honestly. I just don't think that right. happens, even with a, a relationship with a client. I mean, we got lots of clients that, even if we got the call that night, I'm not running down there. I'm just not doing it. Yeah. I'm going to let law enforcement clear the scene. Um, I'm not going to even know if there's anything to be done about a case. Maybe you don't love your clients. Maybe I don't. Maybe I don't love my clients enough, but I just think that's odd. So, yeah, I'm, my take on it is that's that's odd. And apparently it was Alec and his brother Randy, which makes me – that makes it odd to me. Um, we've got some people who want to hear more about the attorney that was bugged. 
We'll do that on another pod. Um, stay tuned. I mean, so I, I think it's it's public record in South Carolina. We can talk all about it, but it is um, we'll have a whole future pod in the very near future on attorney-client privilege okay. and violations of that. There's subscribe a, there, like and subscribe. Um, like and, subscribe. And if you want to so don't miss that content, and if you want to be even more outraged by that. Here's a tidbit. The attorney that was bugged ended up going to jail. Right. So Wait, what? Yeah. yeah. Tune in down the road. <laughs> so uh, uh, Bring the Jury has a, a newly formed YouTube channel. So you can like and subscribe to that. It's Baby Fresh, as I hand it It is Baby Fresh. So it, it is uh, a little difficult to find because I think we have like three subscribers. Um but it's Bring the Jury. You can find it easily kind of through some of our other platforms. Like if you go, it's on Twitter. But YouTube, Bring the Jury. And you can go to Sheila Law and, and yes. a lot of our stuff is there as well. But we're going to be building up that YouTube. Um, it's got some cool graphics and some other yeah, things. Yeah, it's got some cool. I've been working on some graphics. <laughs> Produced by uh, Hannah yeah. here. I'm the producer. I'm not a lawyer. Um, thank God. Thank God. <laughs> Um, can you re- uh, review the appeal process? So I guess circling back to Alex Murdoch, um, and maybe where that is. I think, I mean, I guess we kind of touched on that. We can do it. I mean, Robert, I mean, it's, yeah, he's got, I hate to put you guys out. Oh, no, no, <laughs> Lawyers, uh, Harpoon and Griffin had 10 days to file their notice of an intent to appeal. Cause if you don't file that notice that you want to appeal, you lose that right. So that's very important. That's the placeholder that triggers it. And we've had every indication that they themselves, the trial lawyers, also want to do the appeal. That is less frequent, but does happen. I've done it once on one of my appeals. Um, and then you can't do anything without a transcript. I mean, they know in their minds what a legal issue is, what they think they should really dive into. But you get certain deadlines to get your initial briefs in, to state what your claim is. The state of South Carolina will have a chance to respond to its through its appellate lawyers, and you go back and forth until you have briefed these issues for the first court of appeals of South Carolina, and they can take up your case and give you an oral argument, which would probably be likely in this because it has a lot of attention. Um, they could decline to hear your case and say there is nothing here to see, or they could issue an opinion just without oral argument. If you don't like what the Court of Appeals has to say, you can petition to the Supreme Court. They can do the same thing. Take it up, hear it, decide an opinion without hearing it. Again, you might have oral argument here. Um, If you lose and you've got a case that has massive due process constitutional issues, you can then try to appeal up to the Supreme Court of the United States, for example. You got denied on that. I went that far, and they, (laughs) they did not want to hear, after seven years of hard work, Appearing twice in the Court of Appeals, once at the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court didn't want me to come up there and talk to them about my my justice for my clients. So anyway, and so then after the all the appellate process is done, there's always post conviction relief proceedings that Alec Murdoch gets to bite down on, where he then gets to say, "Well, all my appeals are exhausted." My lawyers were ineffective. That's why I am where I am. And so that that's a whole other process that um, he has to file. 
And, you know, the Attorney General's office once again gets involved to dispute that. He, he would then have to hire certainly other counsel to help him with this post-conviction relief proceeding. For, we can say with certainty that it can't be Dick Carpullian and Jim Griffin because they would have to be um, the ones that the fingers are being pointed at. And, you know, a lot of folks get relief on post-conviction relief um, if their appeals are exhausted. So that's, that's that process. Um, do you all think that Buster, if he, do you think he would be represented by Dick Carpootlian? Now that, I mean, now that that statement was made, does it seem as though that's who he's seeking counsel from? Um, I think this is more of an informal thing. I don't know. If something came of this investigation, you know, Buster would want to be very cautious and would want to have an attorney. I don't, whether he wants his dad's attorney, how messy that is. He was a witness in his dad's trial. I would say probably not be a good idea, but it's not my call. Hmm. <laughs> you never know. Um, yeah, okay. Well, I think we will end it there for tonight. Um, we'll be back again next Monday night live. If you tuned in late or kind of had to miss certain parts, we do upload the full video to YouTube. Again, that is Bring the Jury podcast on YouTube. Um, We will link it in the bio. You can also find us on Instagram, Sheely Law. Um, We upload kind of like highlights, shorter clips, um, and other just information and stuff going on at the Sheely Law firm. Um, we're obviously on TikTok. We are, we have two YouTube channels, just the Sheely Law Firm and then Bring the Jury. And then also both accounts on Twitter too, if you'd like to follow along there. And yep, this was Luke Sheely, Brian Sheely. I'm Hannah. And thank you all so much for tuning in for our 12th episode of Bring the Jury. And if there's any questions that you guys think of after watching this, just message us on this account and Hannah can follow up with it. And we yes. can have future things to talk about. Yeah, or if there's any cases, I think I just saw someone um, asked about a, another case totally separate from Stephen Smith. You know, we've also talked about Idaho 4, but if you have cases that you're interested in, um, let us know. Send us a message, a comment, anything like that about cases that you would like us to discuss. Um, and we, we'd love to do that. So. All right, guys. Great. Thank you so much.